we are starting a new sermon series. It is on the Ten Commandments. That's why we have a nice version of the Ten Commandments up here that you'll get to see each week that reminds us of this most basic of scriptural influence in our life. Ten basic commandments to help us understand how to live our lives. As we begin this sermon series, last week we did an introduction. Today we're going to be looking at the first commandment. One of the things I realized that this is the last message I give before I go on vacation, so I was thinking how much pressure that puts on me because if it's a bad sermon, everybody's going to remember that. And you may not all want me back in a month. So hopefully I can keep people attuned to our message today. But the truth is, the first commandment is an absolutely essential part of what it means to be a person of faith. The text in Exodus chapter 20, verse 3, is very simple. The first commandment is God says, Thou shalt have no other gods but me. What a simple statement. The problem is we make those statements sometimes as Christians and we ask ourselves, do I really know what that means? What does that mean? To have no God but God. I attend a Friday morning men's Bible study. We do it on Zoom. We've got guys who attend here in town. We have men in in New York, Vermont, we've had somebody as far away as Florida. One of the things that this men's Bible study gives me an opportunity to do is sometimes ask questions before we come to Sunday morning and sort of get a perspective on a text that we're going to be talking about. And so I asked them this last Friday, what does it mean to have no other God but God? And that's really the question I have for all of us today, and I hope that we can help us hear that as we go through the text. What does it mean to have no other God but God? One of the men said, it means that when I worry, it means I haven't prayed. What I have to do is learn to turn everything over to God. Another guy said, it means that God needs to be at the top of my mind. I need to acknowledge God and give God the glory for everything in my life. He said, it's really a state of mind. It's just sort of the perspective I carry with me every day of my life. One of the other guys said, God shouldn't be an afterthought. And he explained, he said, my self-sufficiency is really high. He's like a lot of Americans, isn't he? Where we think we can do it all ourselves. And so what he said is, because my self-sufficiency is so high, I realize even at work I have a hard time accepting help from other people. What I need to learn to do in my life is accept that God has to be my helper. I have to be able to turn things to God and trust in him. And one other one said, it means I need to play to the audience of one. He quoted the psalm that says, this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. And he said, as long as I get up in the morning and I start with that psalm, I got a good shot of having no other God but God because I acknowledge even the day that I live in is a gift from God. Amen? Amen. So that's the question for all of us. What does it mean to make God number one in our life and to have no other gods. What I want us to do, and we're going to do this with each of the Ten Commandments, we're going to look at an Old Testament character or maybe a couple of Old Testament characters in some of them. This morning, we're going to look at Hannah. 
Now, Hannah is only found in 1 Samuel chapter 1 and chapter 2. So if you have your pocket Bibles that some people call a smartphone, but we around here like to say they're our pocket Bible that also happen to make phone calls and you can surf the internet with them, you can go to BibleGateway.com and you can for, turn to 1 Samuel chapter 1, or if you brought your, your scriptures with us, I invite you to turn there. Hannah is only found in two chapters in 1 Samuel. And I want to say a little bit about her before we look at her story as she helps us illustrate this first commandment. She lived 1,200 years before Jesus. Think of that. I have a hard time remembering 1985. This is someone who lived 3,200 years ago. That's a long time ago. And the world was much different back then, and you have to think about what you know about women in the ancient world. Very often, women didn't have any of the opportunities that people have today. The primary thing that Hannah would have taken on as something in her life, because this is what women were told 3,200 years ago, is her purpose was really one thing, keeping the family going. So the role of being mother and being the one who raised the children not only was important, it was absolutely everything. Now hear me, being a parent is extremely important. We certainly understand that. But we don't live in a world in which that is the only thing that a person has as a purpose in their life. For Hannah, 3,200 years ago, that is what life was about. Could she have children and could she continue to have the family move forward? As far as what she owned, she probably owned nothing. Nothing. Or certainly very little. In fact, if you would have come across her and looked at her as an individual, by today's standard, we would have said, there's a person who doesn't have anything in their life. However, I'm going to suggest she had everything because she had a very deep and personal relationship with God. If we have that relationship with God, all the other stuff doesn't matter. We learn to put everything else in the proper perspective. Remember... The first commandment is, thou shalt have no other God but God, but me. That's what the text tells us. And that's what Hannah illustrates. Partly, you can say, well, she illustrates it because she didn't have anything. No, she illustrates it because you're going to see that's how she lived her life. She understood what it was to have God at the center of everything. As we look at her story and as we look at this first commandment, I'm going to ask us basically three more questions. And on each of the questions, I hope that we get a little bit of a deeper understanding of what this first commandment is all about. The first question is, what fills your God-sized hole? What fills my God-sized hole? What fills our God-sized hole? You see, we all have a God-sized hole in us, every single one of us. We were created by God, and we were created to have a relationship with God. We were created to be able to be adults who learn to live life on life's terms, who learn to be able to have a relationship with God that fills us and fulfills us. And when we're able to have that in our lives, we're able to be okay. The problem is people try to fill that God-sized hole in their life with all kinds of things. Amen? And they're usually unhealthy. We try to fill it with relationships. We try to fill it with things. We try to fill it with people. We try to fill it with jobs. We try to fill it with titles. We try to fill it with houses. We try to fill it with cars. We try to fill it with moving to a new location and thinking that that will fix us. We try to fill, 
fill it with changing our jobs where we live, and we think that will fix us. You see, it doesn't matter if we move or if we stay or if we have something or we don't have something or what relationships we have. If we are trying to use other things to fill the God-sized hole in our life, those things just get weird. They just become something that they were never supposed to do. All of the things that happen in life are okay and they're good and they're blessings from God, but none of them fill the hole in our life. Only God can fill that hole. Our text begins in 1 Samuel 1.1, where we're told this. There was a certain man of Ramatham Zophim, of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuth, an Ephrathite. Wow, now that's a mouthful. That's usually when a layperson comes to me if I ask them to read that in church and they look at the text and they say, why don't you read that, Pastor Stan? <laughs> Here's the bottom line. When you're reading those difficult Old Testament words, be loud and confident and people are going to think you have it right even if you don't. So let me translate what I just read. There was a guy named Elkanah. That's what it said. There was a guy named Elkanah told a whole bunch about him and about his family, but basically they want you to know there was a man named Elkanah. Then verse 2, he had two wives. If our ears don't um, perk up at that moment, we miss the point. All of a sudden we're like, oh, this is an interesting story. The name of one of the wives was Hannah, the name of the other was Penina. Now, life can be complicated and relationships can be complicated, Amen. In fact, in our house, we have a little sign. It says, dogs welcome people tolerated. <laughs> Isn't that what most of us feel like some days? Relationships can be hard. They take work. They require give and take and listening and understanding. Well, we're going to talk about why we believe that Elkanah had two wives. But at this point, can we at least acknowledge that that does make for a complex kind of relationship and home. I had an opportunity, Regina and I one time got to know a woman quite well who was living in a Christian commune. And we were talking with her and we'd gotten to know her better. This was a number of years ago and in the midst of our conversation I said something like, well there must be just an amazing blessing. You get to know people so well because you're together all the time. She kind of smiled and she said, well, people are difficult. And being around people all the time only makes it more difficult. It's just a lot of work. And I realize we can idealize other situations. The truth is, relationships are all complicated. And once you get more people involved in relationships, it gets hard. And what we have in this story is a family that had all of the difficulties and probably more difficulties than what we can even understand. Here we have Elkanah, and we have Penina, and we have Hannah. Now, why do you think that the, a lot of Bible commentators feel that Elkanah had two wives? Probably because he married Hannah first, and she didn't have children. And in the ancient world, it was so important to be able to pass on your family that then what they did is they allowed for people to take an additional wife. So you can imagine how marginalized people feel in that situation. So here we have this situation where these three people are living together as a family. And then the text tells us Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. 
Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord the hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day that Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and to sons and daughters. Did you hear that? All her sons and daughters. So through this one wife, there's a big family. But then hear what comes next. But to Hannah he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. So now we know that there's some complications already that are taking place within this family. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. Don't miss what we just read. The one woman would say to the other woman, you're less than me. You don't matter. I'm the one who God has blessed. What's wrong with you? So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? Here we have Hannah who had no children, Penina who had many children. They didn't get along, and along comes a husband who is the ultimate codependent fixer. Honey, aren't I better than ten children? Simple answer, no. <laughs> aren't I enough? No. Can't I fix you and make you feel better? No. You see, we do that in life all the time. We do that to other people. Somebody's struggling with something, and we want to make it better. And then we somehow think that we're God, that somehow we can fix things in other people's lives. Or other people do it to us, and we simply want to have a conversation with someone, and the next thing we know, they're trying to fix all of our problems. And that's why we ask that question. What fills that God-sized hole in us? Because a husband coming along and saying, aren't I worth more than 10 kids, doesn't fill the hole in our life. When we have hurts in our lives, when we have that emptiness, when we have that pain, when we have that area of our life that we all have, that nobody can fix, it can only be filled with a relationship with God in which we trust in God. And the Holy Spirit comes into our life and overwhelms our life and allows us to know that no matter what happens, we can get through it. Years ago, I went to a little Bible college where Regina and I met. It's called Fort Wayne Bible College, Fort Wayne, Indiana. A little college. Here's a guy who grew up in a little town of under 500 people, went to a high school that had less than 200 people, then ended up moving to Indiana where I went to a Bible college that had about 400 students and it has since gone out of business. Now what happens when you're in a small college like that you don't get the cream of the crop. I mean, you get what you get, but just by sheer numbers, if you have, you know, 30,000 people at a college, you're going to get better basketball players and singers and violinists and everything than you're going to get in a small school just by way of the sampling. Well, that school had a policy that every year they would put together what they called Christian service singing groups. And these Christian service singing groups would go into churches. They would be put together by the school, and they would be sent out by the college to go to churches to sing and to perform, to represent the school, to give a little Christian message so that the school could help everybody know who we were. Well, each year they would choose the different groups. 
One year, I was asked if I would be willing to lead one of the groups. Now, you have to understand, first of all, I'm not a very musical person, so the real reason I was asked to do it is because administratively I could put it together, and they knew that I'd be able to make the bookings and all of that stuff and oversee the driving of the van. But the problem was, even with the leading and, and teaching the group, they had to bring somebody else in to help coach the singers. But here's the other thing. All the other groups were chosen first, and the leftovers came into our group. And they let us know that. We were called envoy. Another way of putting it is we were the ones who weren't good enough to make in anybody else's group. And then, if that wasn't enough, when it came time for equipment, we asked about the equipment. They said, oh, yeah, all the other equipment's been given out, but we have some old equipment. Some of it's broken, but you guys can just put that all together, and you can take that out as you go to the, to the different churches. Some of our equipment didn't work. Sometimes it would work one week and not the next week. We knew that we were the leftovers. We knew that we weren't the best. We weren't the best of the best. And we sort of embraced it. And it sort of became a fun thing that we, we were like, hey, you know, we're the group that nobody wanted. And so as a group, it became sort of fun for us. But then there were these times when we got to perform in chapel. Now, at the college that we went to, every single day we had chapel. We had to go at 10 o'clock in the morning for an hour chapel. And every once in a while, they'd bring in all the Christian singing groups, and that's what chapel would be. And so now you had all the good groups and us. And then it was really apparent that we weren't as good as them. And to make matters worse, I have, remember these moments where we had this slideshow, and that was the thing that I did. We, we had these two projectors, and we had this music that would play, and the slideshow from time to time wouldn't work. And I would always pray, please, God, don't let it mess up in front of the student body. And you know what would always happen? It would mess up in front of the student body. And we would just sit there, and I'd be like, eh, that's us. You know, sometimes we feel like that in life, don't we? We feel like that college kid trying to direct a group where we're told, hey, you're not good enough to be in everybody else's group. And people try to make us feel okay about it. They try to fix it. But in reality, we go through life a lot of times having those feelings about things. We compare ourselves to others. They're smarter. They look better. They have a better job. They have something I don't have. And it's so easy to get caught up in what we would call a very secular mindset of somehow thinking that we need to compare to someone else or something out there needs to fix us, and it can't. That's just part of our human frailty and our human nature. Whether it's a college student feeling like, you know, they put me in a group that they told us we're not as good as everyone else, or maybe somebody hasn't said it as directly and hasn't put it together that way, we still have that hole in our lives in a lot of areas, amen? We've all been there. And what do we do with that hole? That's really the question. What do we allow to fill it? What do we allow when we have those moments when we feel less in? Can we learn to embrace our brokenness? Can we learn to embrace our humanness? Can we learn once and for all to accept the fact that we don't have to be perfect? We don't have to compare to someone else. We don't have to think that somebody else is going to fill it for us or fix it for us. We can have a relationship with God, and in that relationship with God, when we let that relationship fill us, then we're full. Then like Hannah, we don't care what others say or what others want to stand, compare us to. And that's why the second question I ask us as we look at this first commandment, do we know God? Not do we know about God? Not can we write a paper on beliefs of the Methodist or Baptist or Lutheran church? 
Not can we define the difference between a non-denominationalist and a Roman Catholic. No, do we know God? Do we have that relationship with God in which we understand that God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life? That we can trust in that God who gave us his son who cares about us intimately. Listen to what we hear in verse 9. After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli, the priest, was sitting on a seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. Hannah was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow when she said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. You see, Hannah had learned that when she hurt, when she struggled, when she had a pain in her life, she could go to God. She could cry to God. She could laugh with God. She could pour her heart out to God because she had a relationship with God. God wasn't just some emergency number that if she got in trouble, she could dial 911. Far too many Christians live their lives this way. Rather than knowing God, we know about God, and we say, oh, well, if I'm in trouble, I guess I can dial 911. I knew a family one time in Chess that one day the little boy, I think he was probably six, maybe seven years old, picked up the family phone and dialed 911 and said, our house is burning. And he hung up. Uh, somebody called back. The mom answered the phone. Said, hi, we just got a call from this number. Is your house on fire? And the mom said, no. Why do you ask that? They said, well, a little voice sounded like a little kid just called us and said the house was on fire. Mom went to the child and said, why did you do that? And the little boy said, oh, at school today, they taught us that if there's a problem, we can pick up the phone and dial 911. I wanted to see if it worked. <laughs> Is that our prayer life? Are we just blindly little kids dialing 911, wondering if somebody's out there who's going to answer us and help us? That's not a relationship with God. That's an emergency phone call. What the Bible teaches us is God is not our 911 call. God is the one who wants to get to know us. Do you know God? Does God know you? Are we just kids blindly making these phone calls, hoping that somebody out there is going to listen to us? You know, when we have a relationship and we know someone or are known by them, it's very different. Now, I like to joke and say, Regina and I are crazy dog people. If you don't believe it, the first thing we do when we go on vacation, we make sure we can take our boxer with us and we go and stay at a hotel where we can take our boxer. I turn to her a lot of times and I go, why are we so crazy that we take our dogs with us everywhere? We used to do the same thing with our German short hair. But the truth is, my wife and I love dogs and we've always loved dogs. In fact, back when we were college students, that's one of the things that brought us together was our love of dogs. And when we were college students, there were two different times that we rescued dogs. That is a hard thing to do when you live in a dorm. We actually also rescued a cat. And we found homes for them. One time, we're driving to North Dakota, and, and we pull up to the farm. The, well, the church is out in the country. And my mom is so excited, and she comes out, and her college student's son and his fiance are getting out of the car. And she gives us a brace and looks and goes, what is that? It was a dog we'd picked up along the way that we wanted to find a home for. Story for another day. But the point is, 
I've always loved dogs. My first relationship with a dog was Teddy. Teddy was a German Shepherd. And I was a little boy, probably four years old, maybe five, when my parents got me my Teddy. And Teddy loved me, and I loved Teddy. I used to be able to have people hook up a sled to Teddy, and he could pull me around the yard. I could take my hand and stick it in Teddy's mouth and say, Teddy, bite me, and I couldn't even get his jaw to come down on me. Teddy followed me everywhere. There's a couple times when, because Teddy had a problem, let me explain the problem, Teddy didn't like people. He liked me, but he didn't like anybody else. And so he would go bite people. And that's not a good thing when you're a German Shepherd. So if Teddy would go out, he would be, bite the paper boy. He even bit an elderly woman in our church. Now, my dad was a pastor. People don't like that when a German Shepherd just comes out and bites them. And Teddy would do it unprovoked. I could never convince his dog to stop biting people, but I had a great relationship with this dog. So my parents a couple times said, we got to get rid of Teddy, and they gave Teddy away. One time, I was told, 25, 30 miles away. They drove Teddy way out in the country. Teddy found his way back right to our house because Teddy and I were super close, and I knew Teddy. One time, my mother loved to tell this story. Sylvia Darling, isn't that a great name? She was my first girlfriend. We were about four or five years old at the time. Sylvia lived across the street, and she and I and her little brother were playing in our yard, and Teddy was with us. And we were just having a nice time until Mrs. Darling tried to come and get her children, and Teddy would not let her get anywhere close to anybody because she didn't have a relationship with Teddy. I had a relationship with Teddy. So my mom said, Mrs. Darling had to call my mom on the phone and said, would you please tell Stanley to take the dog, get it tied up so we can get over and get our kids? Now, my mother said that our neighbor found it strangely comforting because she knew that nothing would ever happen to her children as long as they were playing with me and my German Shepherd. That's called knowing a dog. I knew that dog, and that dog knew me. Somebody else didn't know the dog. They maybe knew about the dog, but they didn't know the dog. Similarly, the day that my mother had a heart attack, and I was at Miriam Hospital standing outside her room crying, and the doctor walked out and said, Stan, what's wrong? And I said, my mother's dying. And he said, no, she's not. And he started telling me all this stuff about my mom, about her heart and about new vessels that it was creating and how her heart was fine and all these tests that he had run on her. And as he walked away, I composed myself and I realized he knew about my mom, but I knew my mom. They're very different. Knowing about someone or about a dog or about somebody's mother is different from knowing the person. The text asks us a simple question. Do you know God? Not do you know about God. Not do you say, I go to a church where Pastor Stan tells me I can pray to God and no matter what, God listens to me. Do you have that relationship with God? That's what it means to know God and to have God first in our life and have no other gods but God. When we understand that God is God and a person and one that we can talk to and pour our heart out to and fill the needs in our life and realize that no matter what, God's not always just going to rescue us and come in and, and be a Coke machine that if we put the right amount of money in and hit the right button, we get everything we want. But that relationship is always there to fulfill us. There's an old pastor in one of my churches. His name was Dan Partridge. 
He'd come up to me after some sermons and he goes, now, Pastor Stan, you are meddling today. The first time he said it, I said, what do you mean meddling? He goes, that's when you're telling us stuff we don't want to hear. I'd say, is that bad? He goes, no, I like it when the pastor meddles. I want to meddle for a moment. Let's talk about what it means to have a relationship with God and quit letting everything else fill us. Do you and I ask God to bless our family? Or do we understand our family belongs to God? There's a difference, folks. There's a difference between saying, God, bless this child, versus God, this is your child. Are we the parents and grandparents and aunts and uncles or whatever family members who watch the children who are out doing a sporting event and vicariously live through these kids and don't understand why our kids aren't treated the same as someone else and how dare the coach do this and how come that? Is that how our relationship is with the kids? Or do we understand that these kids belong to God and God has them where they need to be and God's working in their life? Do we see our job and say, God, give me a good job and bless my job? Or do we understand that our job belongs to God? See, it's a completely different mindset when we get to the point where Hannah got in her life where she understood, even if I have a child, this child's not mine, this child's God. My life isn't mine, my life belongs to God. The first commandment asks us a very simple question. Do we worship the one true God or do we make everything else first in our life? Do you know where anger comes from? Almost every time we get angry, it comes out of fear. It comes out of either fear of losing something that we think we have the right to or the fear of not getting something that we think we should have. And therefore what happens is when that happens, people get angry. There's a time when David was a little boy and we were visiting a church. It was a Presbyterian church. And it came time for the children's message. The pastor called all the kids up forward, and, and little David walked up. He was probably four or five years old at the time. And the pastor had a jar, and he put a tennis ball in the jar. And because David was visiting, he asked David if he would do the little experiment for the day. And he said, David, take your hand and stick it in the jar and grab the tennis ball and pull the ball out. And David grabbed the ball and he couldn't get his hand out. And the pastor said, pull harder, and he couldn't pull it out. And he said, pull it even harder, grab on tighter, and he couldn't pull it out. And he said, now let go of the ball. And my little son let go of the ball. And the pastor said, now hold your hand like this. And David held his hand like this. And the pastor took the tennis ball and poured it into his hand. And he said, that's life. That's how we need to learn to live our life. Do we grab hold of things and hold on to it and say this is mine and get upset and fearful when we lose it? Do we look at something that we say, that's mine and I have the right to it and I need to have that and therefore I'm upset because of course you're keeping me from getting what I want? Or do we go through life like this, like Hannah did, and hold our hands out and say everything is a gift from God? Now, I'm going to tell you, and you can ask David this, we talk about that children's message probably 15, 20 times a year. It made such a huge impact on him and on Regina and myself as we listened to it. Because, folks, that's what it means to know God, to quit thinking that we need to grab onto things and we need to own things and we need to possess things and we get angry when we don't and we get frustrated and we make our life miserable and every other person's life miserable. But when we understand who God is and what a relationship with God is, we start to hold our hands like this 
And we see everything. We see a move. We see a new job opportunity. We see a new child in our life, a new grandchild, as a gift from God and one to be given back to God and one to trust God for. When Eli met Hannah, I'm not going to read this portion of the text, he thought she was drunk. He thought she was a crazy lady. Who's this woman hysterically praying and sobbing before God? Then he turns to her and he says, I really hope God will answer your prayers. He doesn't guarantee it. We don't guarantee things to somebody else. Somebody doesn't come to me and, and say, can you promise me that this is going to happen? And I say, I'm going to guarantee it. And you can't do it either. But you know what we can do in life? We can acknowledge that God's sovereign. As I love to say, we don't know the future, but God does. And so if we go through life with our hands like this, we can learn to trust God. Which brings us to the last question. Have we learned to be right-sized? Have we learned our relationship with God? Do we understand what it means to be a human being in, in a relationship with a loving God who created the universe and created us and gave us a Savior? In verse 22, we're told, as soon as this child was weaned, Hannah says, I'll bring him so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. And then when she'd weaned the child, she took him up with her along with the three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour, a skin of wine, and she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. The child was young. Then they slaughtered the bull and they brought the child to Eli. And he said, Oh, my Lord, as long as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who is standing in your presence praying before the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he's lent to the Lord. What we have here from Hannah is an interesting play on words. The Hebrew word shal, think of it as capital S, capital L means lent or entrusted. It means that something is given to somebody for a period of time that they don't own it, but they become stewards of it. What did she name the child? Samuel. What does she say back to God? This is lent back to you. Because Hannah understood that she did not own this child. Her worth and her life was not determined by now the fact that she had a child and she could grab onto this child and say, look at me, I'm equal with everyone else. She understood that life was a gift that was given to her and entrusted to her and now she entrusted the child back. Every parent has to face this question in our lives. This is not a story just for parents, but man, it makes sense for us when we're parents because every one of us goes to that moment in our life where we are faced with the reality that no matter how we think about it, we do not own kids. I asked my brother one time, when did it happen to, for you? He said, the day my first child got in their car and drove out of the driveway and I knew I couldn't be in the car with them. It happens sometimes when our kids get married or when they go off to college or when children join the military. And we realize at all these different moments, I think it first happened in our life when our first child got on the school bus and went to school a mile away, and I stood there sobbing, thinking the state of Rhode Island just stole my child from me. 
Because life is not about us owning one another. It's not us owning things. It's not about us owning anything. It's about us understanding our relationship with God and trusting in God and being able to have the open hands to accept what God has for us but realize that we lend it all back to God and it is a privilege and a gift, everything that's in your life and everything in my life. One day Moses was standing before a burning bush. I know because I've seen the Ten Commandments. And Moses looked a lot like Charlton Heston. And he said, okay, I get it. You're God, but what's your name? And God said, I am. Get it? I am. I'm all. I'm it. I created it. It's mine. I am. I created the world. I created you. I created this day. It's all a gift. Can we live our life that way? That's what the text asks us. We begin a sermon series on the Ten Commandments. It begins with asking the question, do we understand having a relationship with God? To be right-sized before God? To understand that everything belongs to God? Do we know God? Have we learned in our life that only God will fill that God-sized hole in our life? As we close our service... There may be somebody here today that says, you know, that's a problem I've got in my life. I'm letting everything else be far too important. I'm letting everything else try to somehow fill that hole in my life. If that describes you or if that describes something that you'd like some prayer for, as the worship team comes forward, I'm going to ask Azekai, I believe Azekai is in here, is he not? Ask him to come to one side up front and I'll be on the other side. And if anybody would like to come forward for prayer during our last song, I invite you to come forward. But let's realize, folks, there's so many things in this world that we make God. We're invited to understand that only God can fill that hole.